put you on notice, give you a bit of a warning. Um, my left calf feels like it's going to be cramping, so if I start contorting in weird ways, it's not necessarily a move of the spirit, um, so just kind of bear with me. I will sort of shake it out, but try not to be too distracted by that. Will you, will you pray with me, not in some sort of perfunctory, quick preamble to a sermon, but in a heartfelt way of actually submitting ourselves to God this morning? So let's just be still and let's pray again. Father, superficially, we're here in a, an old building in a, in a weird corner of Kent. But we want it to be more than that. We want this to be a moment where we encounter you, where we grow in trust of you, where our friendship with one another grows, and where we see things of your kingdom, your good kingdom. So be with us now in this moment. Continue to be with us. We thank you for all that you've done so far. And we just pray that you'll continue to stir our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Is this loud enough, or does it need to be a little bit up it a little bit, please. No, thank you. Let me explain where. I, oh, there we go. Is that too loud or is that okay? That's good. Okay. Let me explain where I think I want to take us this morning because I've ummed and ahed quite a lot about how to approach this morning. And part of me was tempted to play it relatively safe, not safe in a, in a bad way, but safe and give you a straight exposition of Psalm 27 because it's a great psalm and I love it. Um, and that would have been a good thing, but, but I'm not going to do that. Um, a big part of me wants to introduce in some ways a new series that we're going to be looking at in the next few weeks called The Pursuit of God. And again, it's a, it's a great thing, and in many ways we're going to be looking at different elements of that as, as the weeks pass. And as we've done with other things in the past, I would like that theme in some ways to be something that we refer to throughout 2020, The Pursuit of God. Um, but, but I don't even really want to start right there. There was equally a strong pull to do something that I'm sure countless organizations and churches all over the place will be doing with, and running with the whole 2020 vision soundbite, which I'm sure you're already probably quite bored of. Um, and just set out for you what I think lies ahead in the coming year, maybe even five years, a decade even, because it's 2020. But even there, I'm not going to go there. I, I suspect you know by now that I think vision is important, and it's an important thing for us as a church, but that's not really where I want to go this morning even. What I want to do is sit with something that's perhaps a little bit more slippery, a bit harder to define, and I guess you could call it a mood, perhaps a state of heart, but I think it's something that actually comes before all those other things that I've just described. And, and it is a mood, I think, that is caught by Psalm 27, so I will be referring to that sort of at times. That overriding sense that you pick up from that psalm of, God, I need you. Without you, I am nothing. Without you, I am stuffed. And so I want to try and capture some of that mood. And I want to do that by sharing a bit of my heart about where I am as a, as a leader. So, so be gentle with me. But also how that fits in with where I think we are as a church family. But then I want to share a story. And it's an, an old story of revival. And if you haven't hung around church for very long and revival, you're thinking, what? Revival? What does that mean? Basically, it's, it's a moment when things go nuts and God does some stuff that just seems out of the ordinary. So it's quite exciting. Um, and I think this, this old story, and some of you may have heard a bits of it before, 
it captures something of what the best part of me desires and what I know a number of you feel in your guts as well. Now, all of that's quite a long-winded way of saying this might not quite have some of the structure of some of my other sermons, but I hope, but I hope that you pick up the mood music, if you like, and it does resonate somewhere with you deep in your guts. And God willing, he'll use that feeling to inspire us to pursue him, to pursue him even further, the pursuit of God. So where to begin? I've been at St. John's how long now? Too long. Thank you, Dan. <laughs> Boom! There we go. Encouragement. Cramp! Oh. <laughs> Eight and a half years, so probably too right, actually. It is too long. Um, and during that time, I have tried to encourage us to run wholeheartedly after God. You remember the All In series? Do you know how long ago that was? Guess what year that was? Because this was frightening you. 2014, six years ago. Remember those little bookmarks we had? Anyway, and I've also tried to help us think about mission in a fast-changing culture, how we structure ourselves for mission, all that visiony type stuff. And that is really important. And I want you, I want you to take seriously engagement with the teams and respond to that call on the front of the news sheet to think about how you can be part of a team that is looking to serve this community, to engage in mission. I'd also love you to try and embed our overall church vision in your DNA a bit more. Ask yourself this simple but penetrating question, who am I helping to do life with Jesus? Who am I helping to do life with Jesus? It's a challenging question, but if it's what we claim to be about as a church, because we believe there is no better way to do life, then it is a question that we should be posing to ourselves. But as important as all that stuff is, and as much as I enjoy knocking it around and deliberating and thinking about it and how is it that we try and implement those things, I know it is not enough. The pace at which our culture is moving, the completely, and I would call it out of control, rampant secularism, which I know so many of you feel in your schools, in your workplaces, just simply where being a Christian is not an easy gig. I know that however great our thinking on cultural engagement, it won't be enough. However good our leadership programs, our discipleship and mentoring schemes, it won't be enough. And if the church in the West has been characterized by anything in the last 10 years, I think it has been a frenetic search for a model or a technique or a program to stem the flow of this increasing cynicism towards Orthodox Christianity and declining church numbers and that whole shooting match. And as a leader, that can be a pretty exhausting, if not frustrating thing at times. But there's an even more simple reality for me that I am increasingly experiencing. Sometimes when I, when I sit down as I do and just read this, and I wander through the pages of the Gospels, I just kind of gulp. And I don't know whether to let my heart soar or sink. Because there is a gap, probably better described as a chasm, between life as I know it and observe it, and what I read about in those Gospels, and all the miracles and the transformations and all the stuff that's going on. 
And that gap frustrates me and frightens me and all that sort of stuff. And I'm not sure what to do with it. Because I'm not content just to rationalize it away. But it also feels risky to keep going around in a cycle and building a sense of anticipation, a sense of expectation that God might have more for us. But the bottom line is, that cocktail of feelings, it won't go away. And you can fairly ask me, okay, John, well, where on earth does that leave us? Where are we going? And perhaps the most honest, but perhaps most naked answer that I can give you is, I don't know. I don't know. And saying that makes me feel vulnerable because leaders are expected to know that sort of thing. They're expected to give the people they are leading a sense of direction. It's kind of leadership 101, part of the job description. And whilst it's not quite as bad as me standing up here in my boxer shorts, it's not necessarily very comfortable owning that in front of you. But the longer I find myself in this place, and the more desperate the church finds its situation to be, there's also a part of me that is thinking increasingly we might just be in the place that God finally wants us to be. Where our disillusionment, our frustration, forces us to really, really know that some new vibe or cool branding or program or anything else just isn't going to cut it. Call it what you will, a point of desperation, a place of weakness, but ultimately it's that bedrock realization that we do not have what it takes. And we need to get on our knees and cry out to God for a move of his spirit to do something that we can't. Because our culture is running way faster than we are. And even saying that, I know that there is a messed up part of me that even wants to twist that thought and manipulate it as if it was a device or a key to unlocking revival. And I know that that desperation has to be authentic and it has to be real. And we can't manufacture that. The message version of the Bible renders a little bit of Matthew 5 like this. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. By many life indices, I suspect most of us here, and myself included, are not at the end of our ropes. Where we live, the material comfort that we experience, that is not really a reality that we can lay claim to, I don't think. But missionally, in this culture, we are running out of script. And that means that we can only throw ourselves on a simple pursuit of God through prayer, through fasting, and through simple holiness. And that's why I want to share this, this story of revival, to show what can happen when God's people return to that place of desperation, or actually they discover the reality that was always thus. And if you humbly come before God. Now, it's not to crudely suggest that if we sort of mimic what they did, we'll get the same results. God is not a machine where we kind of crank the handle in a particular way and out pops revival. That's not what's going on. But it is to take us that place, to know the desire of pursuing God, to know that the pursuit of God is our calling. It is our vision. As the psalmist says, one thing I ask of the Lord 
This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Now the setting for this slice of history is a, is a really remote, tiny village. And I don't even know if I can get the pronunciation right. For those of you who've heard this story before, you can kind of correct me. It's called Barbus. Is that right? Anyone know? No. Blank faces all around. Okay, that's, that's all right then. I can't be wrong. So I'm assuming by the blank faces that none of you heard it. And it's not surprising, unless you, you've come across this remarkable account before, because Barbus is on the Isle of Lewis off the west coast of Scotland. It is in the middle of nowhere. In fact, it's probably kind of on the side periphery of nowhere. It's just so obscure. And I don't know if they have much of a tourist industry, but this is how one traveler describes it. Barvas is one of the most desperate spots on God's earth, surrounded by monotonous peat moors and bogs, saturated by brine-soaked winds straight off the Atlantic, and with as inhospitable a climate as you'll find in the UK. Yay, let's go there. <coughs> I love it that this obscure setting is the place, is the kind of venue for where God does some crazy, amazing things. And in the parish church in December 1946, God, by his Holy Spirit, came down in revival power on that community. A revival which lasted from that December of 46 until the middle of 1953. Now, pre-war... Church was pretty much a way of life for everyone in that community, for most of the islanders. But when the war intervened and many of the young men went off to war, not a lot of them returned, and there was a general decline in church attendance and a general sense of the loss of the presence of God in the island. They're kind of like, God, where are you? What is going on? But there were people who were determined to pray that God would visit them again. And in April 1945, the parish above us gained a new minister, a guy called James Murray Mackay, which is a good Scottish name for you. Um, and shortly after his arrival, he arrived to the parish, he was summoned by two very feisty old ladies living in a croft in Barbas. And their names were Peggy and Christine Smith. And they said, and I'm, I'm going to struggle this because... The name wants me, wants me to do a Scottish accent, but when I was starting to speak in Scottish to Bron, it slipped into Irish, so I'm just going to go with English. So, uh, no. <laughs> Mr. Mackay, so there's no first name familiarity back then. I think I should introduce that. You should be all addressing me as a Reverend Ward. They go to him, Mr. Mackay, we want you to pray for revival. We sense that God wants to visit the island and our parish. Will you pray with us? And he said, yeah, yeah, I will. And they said, and I, I love this, we will pray in our cottage three nights a week from 10 p.m. until 2 a.m. Will you also commit to pray? And he said, yes, I will. And he gathered seven elders from the church, and they met in a barn in Barbas, and they prayed three nights a week whilst Peggy and Christine prayed in their croft. Here's a little side note. Peggy was 94 and blind. Christine was 92 and severely arthritic. Later on in November, and just note the timescales there, they began praying in April to November, seven months praying three nights a week like that. And actually, even more amazingly, Peggy and Christine had been praying for decades along those lines. 
Both the sisters and the elders, in their prayer meetings, they sensed at the same time that something was afoot, something was happening, and God was beginning to come to answer their prayers. And they got together, and Peggy told them that she thought God was going to bring a revival, and that revival would be led by a particular person, this guy called Reverend Duncan Campbell. He was a fairly well-known evangelist based in Edinburgh. So they wrote him, and they invited him to come to Barbus. Um, he was part of a mission organization, and they, that mission organization wrote back saying, actually, this guy's diary is, is wedged full at the moment. They probably didn't use that language back then. Um, and he's got a number of commitments, so a visit to Lewis isn't going to be possible in December, but he could maybe come the following spring. When Peggy, Peggy, the very feisty variety, heard this, she said, that's what the committee says, but God has told me that he's coming, and he will be here within a fortnight. Duncan Campbell, the guy she was referring to, his autobiography records this. I cannot go into details as to how it was necessary to cancel the convention I was going to. All I can say is that Peggy's prayer was answered, and within a fortnight, I was there. To give you just another little window on this 94-year-old's character, when the revival was in full swing, she had another message from God for Duncan Campbell to go to the north of the island, where there was actually quite a bit of opposition and resistance to the revival. And, and she told Duncan that that's where you've got to go. And he, and he disagreed with her and said he didn't feel any sense of God's call to go up there. Um, and there was too much work for him to do in Barbas. It was kind of it was going on all over the place. And again, Duncan recalls this. Peggy turned her sightless eyes in the direction of my voice, and her eyes seemed to penetrate my soul. Mr. Campbell, if you were living as near to God as you ought to, he would reveal his secrets to you also. Then she began to pray, Lord, you remember what you said to me this morning, that in the village in the north, you're going to save seven men who are going to become pillars of the church. Oh Lord, I have given your message to Mr. Campbell, and it seems he's not prepared to receive it. Lord, give him wisdom because he badly needs it. I'm glad there isn't a Peggy Smith in this church. Perhaps I should be praying for a Peggy Smith in this church. But returning to the story, on the 7th of December, Duncan Campbell, this guy, he arrived in Stornoway and made his way to Barbus. And they had a meeting on that first evening. So he's he's done a boat ride, then a kind of a fairly uncomfortable sort of 12-mile journey. And people gathered in the chapel, and there was a lot of prayer and praise, but, but nothing more than that. At the end of the meeting... The session clerk said to Mr. Campbell, I feel we should go and pray through the night. And poor old Mr. Campbell, who was fairly weary by this point, just done a meeting after a long journey, he agreed to it, and he went, and this is what happened. The deacon said, Do not be discouraged, Mr. Campbell. God is coming. I hear the rumble of heaven's chariot wheels. And then Duncan recounts this. God was beginning to move. The heavens were opening, and we were there on our faces before God. Three o'clock in the morning, and God swept in. About a dozen men and women lay prostrate on the floor, speechless. Something had happened. We knew that the forces of darkness were being driven back. We left the cottage at 3 a.m. to discover men and women seeking God. I walked along the country road, and discovered three men on their faces crying for God's mercy. There was a light in every home. No one seemed to think of sleep. When Duncan and his friends gathered in the church the next morning, a stream of buses 
were coming from every part of the island, and no one could explain who had told them to come. The Spirit of God was at work. And all over the church, men and women were crying for mercy. Some fell into a trance, some swooned, many wept. At the end of the service, Campbell pronounced the benediction, and almost all of them left the chapel, except one young man who was so compelled to pray. He was so burdened for the soul of his friends, he began praying, and he kept on going for about three quarters of an hour, during which time people had sort of turned around again and come back to the church, joined by many others, until there were as many outside the church trying to get in as there were inside the church. And in some amazing way, people had gathered from all over Stornoway and Ness and different parishes. It wasn't until 4 a.m. the following morning that Mr. Campbell was finally able to pronounce the benediction for a second time. And that is how revival began, just how it began on the island of Lewis in December 1949. Let's leave the history for a moment and ask the basic question. What brings revival to the church at any time? The answer unequivocally is God. God alone can revive us. God alone can revive us and the nation and the church. He alone can do it. But thank God for the grace that we've been talking about earlier. He is also rather good at cooperating with weak human beings. And if church history has anything to show us, it's that the revival God brings is often very directly linked or related to the preparation that the people of God make. And at the heart of that preparation is the ministry of prayer. Our psalmist said, Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Someone who's tried to survey a lot of revivals, but particularly focusing on this one in the Hebrides, said, why have these places been so favoured? Why has the Lord been pleased to shower his blessings and reveal his presence in these really remote parts? Why? Because they prayed. They prayed expectantly. They prayed persistently. They prayed with awesome passion. They prayed believingly. They learned to pray as they prayed. The Holy Spirit has taught them in their praying. They have learned the secret of pressing together into the courtroom of heaven and touching the throne. They have waited upon God. Now that inspires me and challenges me in equal measure because I don't pray like that. Even in that place of helplessness that I was describing to you at the beginning, I find it hard to summon up that sort of desire, that sort of pursuit of God. But I know that something of that story is the only solution to our barrenness. Crying out for God crying out for him to come. And it strikes me that at least three things will be needed from us. The first is that we humble ourselves. We cannot, we cannot engineer renewal and revival. We can only plow the ground in prayer. The second thing is we must seek God's face. We pray with intent when we seek his face. 
imagine this scenario for me. Imagine when you have a loved one who leaves the country, goes like across the other side of the world, and they're returning home after a year away, and you're going to the airport to meet them. You park your car at Gatwick, you make your way to the arrivals area, you look anxiously at the screens, it says expected, and then it turns to land a little bit later on, and then it goes in baggage hall. And you're standing with the hordes behind the barriers. What are you doing? Are you looking around casually? No, you're seeking with all that you've got, with all the intensity of your heart, for a face, a particular face, for the face that no other will replace. And as people come through, you won't be distracted until you catch that moment when you see face to face. And it's that sort of intensity that is needed. And then I think, finally, we must turn from our old ways and rediscover holiness. Or possibly to use the language of the 1950s and the revival of the Hebrides, we must turn from our wicked ways. On one particular night, when the seven men were praying in that barn, kneeling in the straw in the middle of winter, one young deacon stood up and he read Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has lifted up his soul to vanity, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, nor sworn to deceive his neighbor. He read the passage again and then invited them to get down even further on their knees and cry out in, in sorrow for their lack of clean hands. And as they continued to wait for God, his awesome presence swept into the barn. Again, Duncan Campbell put it really simply. At that moment, he describes this. They moved out of the world of the common and natural into the sphere of the supernatural. The cost of revival is the cost of prayer, which is humble and purposeful and repentant. So there you have it. God has brought revival across the globe in many different places and at many different times in history. I don't think we've seen it in the British Isles since 1904 in Wales and the 1950s in the Hebrides. Can he do it again? Yes, of course he can. But I think he'll do it again when he finds a church he can trust and when he finds a people in whom he can trust. He found such a people in Lewis. Could we be such people? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us to know what it means to trust you more so that you in turn might be able to trust us. Father, I'm really conscious that I'm speaking of things of which I have little understanding, things quite beyond the realm of my experience. But I do not want that to be so. We don't know what it might be. We can scarce imagine what it might be like if you flung open the curtain between heaven and earth just for a moment, what we might see happen. So, Father, we own our half-hearted commitment we own our materialism. We own our fear and our anxiety. We own our frailty before you. We own our failure to wait on your spirit. And we simply ask that you teach us again 
to know what it means to pursue you, to be prayerful, and to wait on you. Father, give us some of the zeal and patience of of Peggy and people like her. Grow that spirit in us, we pray, for your glory. Amen.